We are going to be in um, primarily in 1 Corinthians 12 this morning, as Mike was reading, and just kind of a little background to get us ready. So we've been in this series now since the first of the year, um, the dawn of the church, uh, looking at these first few moments of the church in Acts 2, um, that we might better align ourselves with God's view of what it means to be a church. And so through this series, we're allowing the scriptures to serve as a mirror for us as a church so we can look into it to begin to notice maybe areas of emphasis that we've lost sight of or things that we've overemphasized that we need to de-emphasize or some areas maybe where we're just missing it all together. But ultimately just asking the question, what does it mean to be the church? It's not enough just to put a sign on the, you know, out by the street, like it means something to God. It means something from a biblical perspective. And so um, we looked early on that these things that the early church was devoted to, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, like their theology, their teaching mattered. They were devoted to it. Um, The fellowship, we spent a whole Sunday looking at this word koinonia and unpacking the meaning and what it means for us. Um, They were also devoted to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And so what we've done so far since then, last week, Uh, We slowed down to look at this idea of koinonia, fellowship, or what we also refer to as biblical community, and begin to look at what does this mean in practical, like, everyday life? What's expected out of me? What does this need to look like Monday through Friday? And what we noticed is that in order for you and I to be in biblical community, we have to be at the same place at the same time. And not just on Sunday mornings, but that our weekly rhythm would provide opportunities for you and I to be face-to-face, for us to share life-on-life with one another if we're ever going to fulfill what God has called and commanded us to. also means that we have to have margin for, for the unpredictable moments, that you and I are available and ready, that we haven't packed out our schedule so thick and so full that when somebody in the body needs you, that you're available and that you can set things aside and respond. And so, but we also talked about if we just link up our lives or sync up our schedules, that's not enough. Just to be in rhythm with one another, like we can be together and still yet completely miss one another. And so today we're going to be looking at the heart of biblical community. What does it actually take for you and I to connect? What does it take for the body of Christ to connect in a way that's being described in the Bible? In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, the first half of that chapter, the Apostle Paul was mainly focusing on the strengths that different Christians bring to the church. He uses the human body as a metaphor, illustration to explain how that works and talks about how in Christ you have been given a gift, a strength from the Holy Spirit, supernaturally empowered to do things. And he says, all these gifts have been given so that you can lean into one another, use your gifts to serve one another, bless one another, meet one another's needs. Your gifts haven't been given to you that you would edify yourself or build your own platform, but your gifts have been given that you might lean into one another. And then in verse 18, he begins to shift and talk about even how our weaknesses are part of this equation. It's not just our strengths that we need from one another. But that if we're going to walk in biblical community, it's both in strength and in weakness. And we'll pick this up in verse 18. Uh, Paul writes, But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you 
nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now, if we would have stopped in verse 17, uh, the conclusion would have been, then whatever my strengths are, you need those. And so we're kind of partners in ministry, which is part of this idea of koinonia. But what he's describing here is a little bit different because now he's starting to focus on our neediness. And he actually says very clearly, very explicitly, even with some strong language, you cannot say, I don't need you. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Now, what he didn't say was, hey, there are going to be times where you're going to need each other. He's like, no, there's never a time where you don't need one another. Now, you think about our neediness, like we are needy people, and our need for Christ, our need for God in our lives, like never ceases. And we talked about in week one how our fellowship with God, our relationship with God, it's made visible through what? Our fellowship with one another, our relationship with one another. And even our neediness that we bring before God Almighty to meet us in our deepest moments of need are revealed in in the way we meet one another in our needs. And so what Paul says is this in verse 22, still using the human body as this illustration, he says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with great modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And so Paul's idea here isn't that we've got strong people in the body, we've got weak people in the body, and oh, all of you strong people who have it together, I just need you to be patient with the weak people. I need you to be patient with those who, you know, have embarrassing stories. Like, I know most of you have it together, but there's a few who don't. What I think Paul is describing is this idea that in all of our lives, there is weakness. In all of our lives, there are things that we would rather hide and not expose to one another. Parts of our story that maybe we're embarrassed or shamed about that we would just rather keep secret. And what he's getting at here is this, verse 26. Here's what I want for the body. Here's how you know if you have intimacy When one member suffers, all suffer together. He didn't say when one member suffers, I hope somebody shows up to suffer with that member. He's saying what I want for the church is that you'll be so tightly knit together in unity, no division, that when one member suffers, everybody feels it. And then when one member is honored again, Everybody feels it. All will rejoice. And so, here's the difficulty. That sounds great in concept. What does that look like and what is required of me to get there? I don't think there's a person in the room who does not want to know that if you go through suffering, the body of Christ will be with you in the trenches. Like If you don't want that, we need to have a different conversation. But how do we get to that place in connection with one another that when you suffer, I feel it and I suffer with you. And equally so, when you rejoice, my heart is filled with gladness and I rejoice with you. Now, 
One of the tendencies um, that I have witnessed in the church, and we're going to come back to this in a minute, but I want to say it up front, is this idea that our connection with one another and our responsibility to one another in Christ is primarily accountability and correction. That's what I was taught as a young Christian, and I've seen this all throughout my church experiences. I've even experienced it here and been a part of it here. Now, we're going to get to a place later on where we talk about how we do have a responsibility to help one another get back on track, to admonish one another, to correct. But listen, church, I'm going to say this now, and I'll say it again. I've spent a lot of time in the New Testament surveying the commands and instructions for the church. I was really deeply impressed by Jesus' words in John 13 when he said, Church, listen, here's how the world will know you're mine. By the way, you love one another. Right? And so I want to know, what does that look like? And in my survey of the New Testament, multiple times through, Matthew to Revelation, Matthew to Revelation, I have found at least 40 commands or statements of instruction that describe how we are to interact with one another. 40. Guess how many out of 40 are corrective in tone? One. One. Now, there there is a place for correction, helping one another get back on track. But that's like my math is right, 3% of the commands. And if my only connection with you and you with me and you with one another is correcting, we're operating in about 3% of what we're supposed to be doing for one another. We're completely missing the other 97% that command us to love and to, to be patient with and to be kind and to be gentle and to pray for and to serve and to be humble towards. And like We're missing it. But yet when I was a young Christian, I was taught this is your responsibility to your brothers in christ as iron sharpens iron so one man sharpens another which is a biblical principle it's just not everything and if that's all we're doing we're going to miss the vast amount of description of what we're supposed to be after in biblical community and i'll just say this we're actually going to miss each other altogether. we'll come back to that in a minute what i want to do now is i want to walk through the process of being known in the church environment okay and so to get to the place where when you suffer i feel it or vice versa we've got to know each other right i've got to be able to look in your eyes and go "Mm, something's off today let's chat and so how do we get there so we've got some slides to help illustrate this so i want to start here here's the idea when you first walk into the church this is how most of us feel we're a fish out of water we might as well just be painted red we're outside the crowd it looks like everybody else is connected, but we're like, mm, like I don't have the, the language, I don't have the insight, like I just feel, right? And, and there's a good chance you've felt this way in other places in life too. This was junior high for me. <laughs> this was junior high. Like I, it didn't matter where I went, I was a fish out of water. I didn't fit in anywhere. But in the church, right, we come in on Sunday morning for the first time, and maybe, maybe that's you. You're like, hey, this is day one. I've never been in the church before. And today, for whatever reason, I'm like, all right, here we go. And so you walked in. Maybe people were kind. You saw there was some coffee. Everything looks clean. You found a chair. But this is where you are. You're a long ways away from being truly known. Now, if you'll hang around for a Sunday or two, here's what will happen. You'll begin to get to know people, basic Family structure, name and face. Oh, he belongs with her. His name is David. I think her name is Sherry or something like that. And you'll begin, and people may begin to know you. Maybe somebody will remember your name. 
and remember that, oh, yeah, that's right, you have two kids, and oh, you didn't have a spouse, oh, this is your husband, and so your basic family structure, but here's the reality, if that's as far as we go, right, this is how we're going to feel. I'm surrounded by people, but I'm still not known. This is the idea that you can, you can be surrounded by 100 people, you can be in a room jam-packed full of people and still feel lonely, and still feel unknown. And if your only experience with the body of Christ is Sunday mornings, you're going to stall out here. You're going to stall out. On one level, that's going to be comfortable because you can avoid the risks of being rejected. If they get to know me, they really won't like me. But there's going to be this hunger inside of you that just won't go away. And so as we continue to get more involved in church, here's what happens. We'll eventually move to a place It requires getting in a smaller room with a smaller group of people, right, where you're beginning to look in at one another, and now you know a little bit more, and they know a little bit more about you. This is where they understand, like, okay, your name is John, and these are the names of your children. This is your wife's name. Oh, this is where you work. You work for Bell. Okay, I've got that figured out. Oh, you live in Live Oak? I live in Live Oak, too. And you begin, oh, okay, what subdivision do you live in? And we begin to know, okay, so you live in this neighborhood, and maybe even begin to pick up on church and theological background, and like, Oh, okay, so you were raised um, Assemblies of God, charismatic. You were raised Presbyterian, so you have a high church view. And like, you kind of get to know somebody, even on a little deeper level, maybe even where you grew up. This is a question I love to ask people. Where'd you grow up? Tell me about where you're from. Like, where did you grow up? Now, this is a better place to be because in this place, at least I feel like I'm making contact with people. Right? I'm, I'm making contact with people. I don't know your phone number, but if I get in a bind, I feel like I could reach out to you and you might respond. Making some contact. Now, this next phase of being known, this is where we really start to lean in towards one another. This is where we get to real story. This is where um, I begin to learn things about your relationships the one, and, and kind of the health, like how your marriage is doing. You're like, oh, yeah years ago we went through a really rocky patch and I'm having trouble with this kid and my sibling and I aren't getting along and yeah my boss is a jerk and I begin to kind of get a little more information about your life and even some of your relationships um, I get to a place where I'll even begin to discover your personal convictions because you'll tell me what, you, what irritates you and I'm like oh okay so stay away from that one theological convictions pet peeves and hot buttons also known as prayer request time you're like oh I don't want to make your prayer request list. But then we might also get into a place of story of redemption. This is what we sometimes refer to as our testimony. It's it's what's happened up until your life until now. Your story of redemption, your testimony, how God has worked powerfully in your life, and you'll share about past sins, and that takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? Even maybe even past addictions and, like, where your life was going off the rails and, like, you know, this is, we do this in redemption groups. Let's share our story. Most of it's past tense, but it's real, right? We're getting to real story, and we're beginning to know one another, and this is actually where we could even get to 1 Corinthians 12 to begin to learn one another's spiritual gifts. Here's the problem, church. This is where 97% of us stall out. We get here, and we go, that's it. That's biblical community. I told my story. I got that off my chest. Now, leave me alone. Right? And so you know, you know more about me than I'm comfortable with you knowing, but here's the problem. I'm still not truly known. I want to take a break from this slide. I want to show you another slide. I want to talk through something with you. So this is an illustration we use in our biblical counseling ministry here to help work with people and to understand where, um, where people are. 
And that stick figure represents just the idea that you're a human being created in the image of God. Um, you have different faculties. You have thinking, feeling, and acting. So the T is like what you think, the B is how you behave, and the F is what you feel. The idea of the heart in the middle is what you treasure. Jesus talks about this. He says, the overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak, right? So what's in here, it'll come out in what you say and what you do, right? If you have good treasure in your heart, then your life's going to produce good fruit. What do we mean by fruit? Thoughts, actions, feelings. But if we have bad treasure in our heart, it's going to corrupt everything. And so as we think about this, then what we actually treasure in life then overflows into our thinking, our behaving, and feeling. Now, the first like decade and a half of my Christian experience was highly focused on behavior. If Christ is in your heart, here's how you behave. Now, to a certain extent, that was really helpful, right? So I was able to take, you know, theology and put it into practice. Oh, this is what it means to be kind. Oh, this is what you do when you mess up. So it was helpful. But that was the majority of the focus. About a decade and a half in, I began to realize, oh, you know what? There's, I'm reading the Bible and I'm realizing my thinking is a little messed up. I think things are true that the Bible says aren't true. And some of the things that I, aren't, that I don't think are true, the Bible's saying aren't. So I need to realign my thinking with the gospel, what I'm treasuring in my heart. And what I've discovered, though, for my life, and even for our church here at Solid Rock, is we've done a lot of focus on thinking and behaving, cognitive behavior, and how the gospel applies to those two areas. The area that we've completely missed is the feelings. What in the world do you do with those things? Because everybody's got them. And so, out of discomfort and lack of understanding, our only option is then to what? Suppress and pretend like they are not there. So I want to talk for a minute about emotions, not because they are primary. Like we know, right? Your emotions should not make your decisions, right? Your emotions aren't always a reflection of true reality, but they're still there. So what in the world did our all-knowing, all-creative God put them in you for, right? Why is this in me? I want to illustrate something real quick um, before I do this, uh, before I go any further. So I'm going to invite my younger son, Calvin. Will you come up, Calvin? This is Calvin. I have two boys. I could have picked either one of them for this, but I just want to bring Calvin up because he has some new shoes that are super cool. Hey, you want some negotiation tips? Spend time with this kid. $200 shoes. He got them for how much? 50, 50 bucks at a coffee shop on Friday. Just He negotiated the whole deal himself with a soccer mom. It was super cool. Nice job. All right, so I'm going to do this kind of illustration with him. He doesn't even know what we're about to do. But what I want to do is I want to think about that. I want to think if, if, if Calvin and I just connect cognitively, I'm giving him instruction. He's receiving instruction. I'm giving him great you know, ideas for life. Lean your, touch my forehead with your forehead. Just, just keep it there. Now look at everybody. Okay, this is going to be our relationship. We're going to connect in thought. Now, back up. If all I do is I monitor his behavior, and I'm like the, the bowling alley bumpers for life. I'm just constantly just, here's how you act, here's how you act, here's how you act. And that's all I do. Now, there's part of my parental responsibility. And that, if that's all I do, this is what our relationship is. shake my hand. This is what our relationship is going to look like, okay? We're going to be good partners in behavior. Look, this is what we're after. Give me a hug. This is what we're after. Love you, buddy. All right, you can have a seat. 
Listen, uh, sweet, right? So much of church, we're just connecting theologically. Discussions, debates. Did you read this book? I read that book. That's a helpful part of your Christian journey. Right theology, right thinking is an overflow of the treasure in your heart. There are times where you're going to do things or I'm going to say things or do things that offend. You're going to have to say, hey, Jason, you said this. It kind of offended me. It hurt me. You need to look at your behavior. I need to hear that from you and you need to hear it from me. Listen, like, but this is where we're supposed to connect. To lean in. Not just head to head, hand to hand, but like chest to chest with one another. And like, this is where things get uncomfortable. This is where things get real. And this is where things get vulnerable. To be fully known, you can go to the last slide, this is where we have to get to. I can't just talk about my past anymore. I got to tell you where I'm at today. What am I scared of today? What rooms am I insecure in today? Where are my hurts? Where are my shame? Where is my shame? Where is my guilt? Where's my sadness? Where's my anger? Where's my loneliness? What makes me glad? What am I happy about? What am I looking forward to? What am I dreaming about? And what are my current sin struggles and addictions? Now, what I want to do is I want to talk to you for a little bit about emotions and what the Bible says about emotions and why you have them. Emotions can do two really helpful things for you. The first thing is emotions expose what you love. So it doesn't matter what your t-shirt says or what you say, your emotions will always be an indicator of what you love. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. When you get what you love, you become happy. Whatever it is, chocolate, time with your spouse, when you get what you love, you become happy. That's one way of knowing what you love. Listen to this, though. When somebody else gets what you love, you become envious. And when somebody takes away from you or keeps you from that which you love, you get angry. And if you have something that you love and then you lose it, you become sad. That principle applies to three-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 90-year-olds. I want you to think of your emotions like this. Your emotions are the dashboard of your life. Lights and gauges, they let you know when something needs attention. They let you know when something's going wrong. Now, here's the mistake we make. Your dashboard lights aren't what's wrong with your car. They're telling you what's wrong with your car. You don't need the light to go off. You need what the light is pointing at to be fixed, right? Amen, yes. Listen, your emotions aren't what's wrong with you. It's what's right with you. It's what God put into you, aligned with a heart in Christ, and Christ in your heart, and your treasure is Christ. Here's what your emotions are going to do. They're going to let you know something needs attention. Something's not quite right. You find yourself three days in a row getting angry and you don't know why. Stop. Look at the light. What am am I after in life that I'm not getting? What What happened that I thought shouldn't happen? What needs to happen that's not happening? Why am I angry? What's going on in my heart? What am I treasuring right now? Loneliness. My lonely light's going off. Boom, boom. What's my most important relationship? My spouse. 
Okay, have, have we connected? Maybe we spent like three or four days passing in the hallway. And just because the marriage wasn't on fire, we didn't actually stop and connect. Maybe I'm just lonely because I haven't like connected. What do my friendships look like? Maybe it's been like a week since I've actually just sat down with another human being and said, hey, look, will you just look at me, like see what's going on? There's a, there's a, there are a lot of words in our Christian faith that get hijacked from culture and rearranged. Words like love, hate, friend. One of those words is intimacy. Okay, so I don't want you to hear that word and think about how the world defines that word. Here's what I want you to think about. Take the word and break it down. In, to, me, see. Or see into me. This is where you hand somebody the lantern and you say, hey, will you look in my life? Will you look into the dark places? Will you look into places that I have never exposed or shared with anyone? Here are the keys. Here's the lantern. Look into me. Church, listen, that's what we're after here. That's the heart of biblical community. I heard this recently it was last fall, a friend of mine, we were talking about friendship and intimacy and how many friends you need. And so many of us will have like a hundred friendships that are this deep. And we were talking about, you know what, I'd rather have fewer friendships, but have them be like, you know, this deep. And my buddy, uh, Russ, was like, you know how many friends you need? And I was like, no, please tell me. He's like, you need six. I'm like, that sounds arbitrary. Where'd you get that number? He's like, because that's how many dudes it'll take to carry your casket. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> that's sobering but like listen the here's the principle he's like do you want anybody carrying your casket that you don't trust your wife and family with do you want anybody carrying your casket who doesn't know you on that level like no he's like that, you need to think about who your casket friends are these are the guys who know you guys who you've handed the lantern and the keys and said hey look into me help me see what i don't see now there's a really um helpful but scary question that you can ask in life. Um, here's the question. I'm going to tell you how to apply it. Here's the question. What's it like to be with me? Oh, so nobody's giggling now. That's a sobering question. What's it really like to be with me? Uh, I was in a counseling session uh, last year, and my counselor, um, he uh, he said, hey, Jason, here's your homework for today. I'm like, okay, good. I've got my pen and my paper. He's like, it's just, you don't even need to write it down. What do you want me to do? He's like, I want you to go sit down with your wife, and I want you to ask her this question. What's it like to be with me? I'm sorry, we're losing the connection. Zoom's not, did, is, your, is your internet okay? Because I thought what you just, and he's like, no, that's, that's what I want you to do. Go sit down with your wife and ask her, what's it like to be with you? And then don't say anything, just listen. But what an intimate question. And you can't trust everybody with that question. The Bible isn't calling you to give the lantern and the keys to everybody in your life, everybody in your world, but you've got to have it with somebody. You have to have, you were created for it, you were meant for it. And when that dashboard light of loneliness goes off, that's what's right in you, telling you what? You're missing out on intimacy somewhere. Take a step back. Don't just assume that because you spent the night in the same house, in the same room, in the same bed with your spouse, that you guys are connecting. Stop. It's there for a reason. I shared this story in the, the first service. My first truck was a 69 Chevrolet truck. Had a 350 engine in it. I only owned it for nine months because that's as long as it would last under my stewardship or lack thereof. 
the firing order for the 350 Chevrolet engine is 18436572. And that only makes sense to the mechanics in the room. That's the, that's the sequence that the cylinders fire so the engine stays balanced. How do I know that? Because I had to rebuild the engine twice in nine months. You know why? Because I didn't pay attention to the gauges. There weren't a whole lot of lights on a 69 Chevy, but there were gauges. One of the last times I drove that truck, um, I was about 15 minutes from home. Started getting hot, redlined, out of oil, out of water. And I was like, man, I'm in the middle of nowhere. And I drove that thing all the way stinking home. And then when I got home, I put water in it. It's cold and hot. Guess what happened? Cracked the block. Boom. Burned the thing to the ground. Was done with it. Listen, I'm saying that because if you don't pay attention to the dashboard lights of your life, you'll burn it to the ground. They're there to tell you what needs to be paid attention to. That's what your emotions are for. They're not there to make, help you make wise decisions and Right? Like, they're not there to, to fill your life with vast knowledge. They're there to tell you when something's wrong. Stop. Pay attention. What's going on? Now, I want to just add some more biblical counsel to what we're talking through here. In Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 9 and 10, uh, Paul writes this. He says, love must be sincere, which means then there's an insincere version of love. We'll leave that one for another time. Love must be sincere, genuine. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, to be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. And look at what verse 15 says will happen. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing and mourn with those who mourn. I can't mourn with you unless we connect on that level. See how it works? I can't suffer with you unless you share your life with me. In 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul um, talks about this struggle he had in his life. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. And if you're on the slides, I'm going to skip down to um, verse 10. And Paul's conclusion in his struggle and in his weakness is this. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. And right before that, he said, church, listen. I'm no longer going to be one of those guys who hides weakness. I'm going to be one of those guys who boasts in weakness. That's where I'm made strong. I can't be made strong by hiding my weaknesses from you and those around me, but I'm going to boast. I'm going to proclaim. I'm going to divulge. I'm going to reveal. I'm going to expose my weakness. Colossians 3, Nick was preaching on this on Wednesday about forgiveness. This is where we find that, that verse that says, hey, you need to admonish one another. Give instruction, correct one another. But listen to how it's embedded here in Colossians 3. I'll start in verse 12. This is where Nick was reading on Wednesday. Put on then as God cho- God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Can't, can't skip over those words. What kind of hearts? Compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called to one body, and be thankful. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let that be the treasure of your heart, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your hearts to God. So you were just instructed to admonish one another. Did you see what it was embedded in? Kindness and patience, compassion, love. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, another place where we're told something similar. Verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Oh, and correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. God might use you to lead somebody to repentance, but he won't do it with your arrogance or your self-righteousness. He'll do it with your kindness, though, and your humility and your patience. Last passage, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then we're given this instruction. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So yes, there is a place where you and I have a responsibility to admonish, correct, and help guide one another towards holiness. But it's like 3% of the things we're commanded and instructed to do with one another. I want you to do one last thing. I want you to look around the room right now. Just turn and look at the people in this room, okay? Just look at each other. Listen to me, church. The people in this room, they're yours to love. They're not yours to fix. Only the Holy Spirit can fix what's broken in them and you. He may use you. You can't fix anybody. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we, are, we belong to one another. You're mine to love, and I'm yours to love. I can't fix you but I can meet you where you're at. I can see into you and you can see into me. We can meet chest to chest. I can't do it with all of you. I can do it with a few of you. And so can you. That's what we're after here, church. That's where we're headed. I want to end with just some questions to think through. What's keeping you from being willing to expose your weaknesses and neediness to others. What's keeping you from that? Fears, insecurities, risks that you'll be rejected. Like, what's keeping you from that? I can't answer that for you. Just encourage you to think about it. Have you ever had that kind of relationship? Maybe you're sitting here going like, I need that, but there was a time when I had it. How long has that been? Who are those people that you've connected with on that level? How does the gospel encourage, challenge, and even empower you to take the risk, to expose yourself? You know the gospel declares that you're needy, right? And that you can't fix yourself? Like that's the first part of the gospel. Just, just believing the gospel means that I believe I am in need. I am needy. So how does the gospel encourage you and empower you, maybe even challenge you to like, okay, I need to lean in. I need to be willing to take more risks here. I need to move from being unknown to known. And then lastly, what step can I take this week towards becoming more intimately connected with the people in my life? And listen, don't go try to conquer this in one week. I need six friends. I'm going to set up six lunches. No, start, hey, please, start with one. And if you don't have this in your marriage, start there. Listen to me, start there. 
Doesn't mean you won't have friends, but start there. Take that step this week. If you got it there, you need more than that. You need some people to carry your casket while your spouse is mourning. What one step can you take this week to step towards intimate connection with others? All right, I'm going to pray for us now, and worship team's going to come out, and then we've got a baptism. I'm super excited about that, but let's pray together, uh, and then we'll, we'll move forward. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for challenging us as your church. Thank you for painting a, a beautiful portrait of what um, you're calling us to, and God, we just confess. I confess, God, that I've spent a majority of my life missing um, intimate connection this way. Um, God, my prayer is that as a church that we would, we would aim at this, we would move towards it, we would step towards intimate connection with one another. God, so that when one member suffers, we all feel it. When one member rejoices, we rejoice together. So Father, I pray that as the service wraps up today, if somebody's got a need, something going on, that they would reach out to one of our prayer partners or our elders and let us pray and, and talk. We just pray all this, Jesus, in your sweet name. Amen.